Welcome to this week's episode of CTS Nets podcast, The Beat. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Mitzman, thoracic surgeon with the University of Utah Health System and the director of robotic thoracic surgery at the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City. CTS Net Beat focuses on the latest research, news, and interviews from the world of cardiothoracic surgery. In addition, you can keep up with the latest cardiothoracic news by subscribing to the CTS Net Journal and News Scan. First, a quick announcement for the upcoming Ancona Virtual Live course presented by CTS Net. This is taking place June 7th and 8th and is the second iteration focused on minimally invasive and transcatheter cardiac surgery. First taking place last year, the remarkable participation and feedback led to the course directors to offer an updated version of this course again in 2021. Course faculty include world experts on minimally invasive cardiac surgery, including course director, Dr. Marco D'Usanio and Dr. Sassam Balki, Joseph Bavaria, Johannes Benati, Tom Wynn, Gianluca Torregrossa, and many, many more. Check out CTS Net's Ancona course page for more details. On the March 23rd podcast, we dove into a recent CTS Net submission on a review of anatomy and technique for robotic lobectomy submitted by senior fellow Amara Watkins at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and her mentor, Dr. Elliot Servais. This week, I invite Dr. Servais on to discuss training the next generation in robotics and how to best prepare our trainees for a future in robotic thoracic surgery. Dr. Elliot Servais is a thoracic surgeon with Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. He serves as the Director of Robotic Thoracic Surgery and Vice Chair for Quality and Safety in the Department of Surgery. Dr. Servais is a National Proctor with Intuitive Surgical and a leader in robotics. He routinely works with trainees and is here to chat about training the next generation. Elliot, thanks for coming on the podcast. Brian, thanks a lot for having me. I think this is a, a, a great forum you have here and I'm, I'm happy to be part of it. So let's jump right into it. You know, as you know, our time with fellows is short. It's usually just two years, some programs are three years. You know, as a robotics guru, what's your thought process for getting a trainee up to speed on the robot, but also making sure that they develop adequate bats and open skills and get everything else that they need? Yeah, Brian, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I think I would start by saying that we have to all recognize that two years, like you said, is short. And to think that you are going to complete your two years and be an expert robotic surgeon or an expert at anything is setting yourself up for disappointment, right? So I, I, I think it's important even as an attending surgeon learning how to do robotics that you, you have realistic expectations and you understand that your goal is to get the foundation, the fundamentals, but there is on the job learning that's gonna have to happen. And, and if you're a fellow right now or a resident in general surgery and looking towards a career in robotic thoracic surgery, recognize that the learning curve is gonna go well beyond your time as a trainee. And you're gonna keep going as an attending. But you know what I would say when it comes down to the real nitty gritty is I think you have to um, do simulation, okay? We have to be able to supplement time in the operating room with simulation. You and I have talked about this before, but I'm a huge proponent of videos. You have to watch surgical videos and watch robotic videos. I think that's critically important. Um, but at the end of the day, there's really no substitute for just being there, right? Um, you have to be in the OR and you have to watch. And what I tell my trainees and what I told myself as a fellow is go to the OR even if you're not operating. Watch the case watch the setup because as you become more mature as a learner in surgery you start to realize that it's all about the setup 
right? You know, being able to use the Cartier or the bipolar is minimal compared to understanding the setup, understanding the retraction, understanding how the attending sets it up for you. Go to every single case. So then for the second part of your question, I tell people, well, yeah, the reality is that, you know, with all the robotics we're doing and all the minimally invasive, the open cases are becoming fewer and, and further between. The, the nice thing about thoracic surgery is there's always going to be open thoracotomy because there's always going to be cases that need it. But your goal as a trainee is to get to those cases. Go, show up. I don't care if it's on a different service. That's not your attending. That's, you know, you're, you're taking your lunch break. Just pop your head and see how they're doing it. And you have to be there and you have to see the setup. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the key. Simulation, videos, but then at the end of the day, be there for the cases and make sure you get the experience. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Just the whole idea of showing up is the most important point. Even if you only see a case once as a trainee, that's still once that you've seen how to set up that case so you know how to do it in, in the future. So do you have a pathway for graduated autonomy with your trainees on the robot? Do you have requirements that they have to you know, complete outside the OR, like a skills lab or the online modules? Or, you know, and then once they're in the OR, do you have a step-by-step -step process of how they're going to advance uh, with their skills during your case? Or do you just play it by ear and see how each individual, individual trainee is doing? Well, so I think it's a little of both, actually. I think you do, every trainee is gonna approach this a little bit differently. And it's, it's your job as the uh, uh, attending surgeon to sort of feel that out and understand how quickly someone achieves proficiency and can move to the next level. But that said, um, I think, you know, we do have a very standard process uh, with milestones. And the, the good news is nowadays, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Lots of folks have written about this and it's out there. Um, and I think that's important. So we do require um, certain pass rate on the simulation uh, program. Um, we also um, very strict with having you do bedside assists and being able to understand the console. And incidentally, I tell attending surgeons who are learning robotic surgery that you need to spend time on the bedside. You need to spend time, you know, docking and understanding that. Because let's not forget, when you're at the robot console, you're, you're, you get such tunnel vision that you actually can't really see what's going on at the bedside. So the only way that you get good at understanding how the robotic arms are interacting with each other is if you've actually been at the bedside watching those robotic arms. So the residents have to do at least 10 cases bedside assist. Then what we do is we have a, a very clear stepwise process. I think there are certain, I'm sure you would agree, Brian, there are certain sort of level one steps within even a level one case. So let's take a lobectomy. You don't have to go right into dissecting the pulmonary artery. Let's start with taking the inferior ligament. Show me that you know how to retract the lung, how to do the manipulation of the tissue properly without injuring the parenchyma. Show me that the, you got the ligament down. Then we're gonna do some lymph node dissections. After we do the lymph node dissection, I'll have you dissect out the junction between the right upper lobe bronchus and the bronchus intermedius posteriorly. That becomes a little bit more challenging. You got the posterior ascending artery right there. There's some danger zones and we'll go stepwise. Then I'll, find, then I'll have you getting around the vein and then finally, you're going to be getting around the artery. And before you know it, you're going to be doing the whole case. But you have to make sure that you have a stepwise process. It's so interesting because back when you know, we were trainees, we're, we're similar in age, there really wasn't that much of a formalized robotics process. But 
we've all kind of ended up developing our own training algorithms that are almost identical because I do almost the same thing with my trainees where start with the ligament then okay, let's do some nodes. And it's really, you know, once you show that you're safe with that step, we'll move on to the next one. Yeah. And you know, Brian, I think what that's going to ultimately do for people is it's going to allow their learning curve and their time to proficiency to be quicker than it was when nobody really understood how to do it. And they were sort of just like, okay, jump on the console and let's see how far you get. Um, because then people get discouraged. And not only do people get discouraged, but you have to remember a lot of the attendings are still training themselves. Right. So how do you know what part of the case you can give up if you're still training yourself? Well, you have to know what parts of those case you've become proficient at that you can now train the junior on. So this is the perfect segue into another question I have. You know, you do a fair amount of complex uh, robotic surgery, sleepopectomies, esophagectomies, advanced tumors. How do you know when a trainee is ready to take the lead on some of these more complex steps? Right. Okay, great question. So I, I, have, I have a pretty... Um, uh, strict opinion on this. <laughs> okay. I, I, I think that um, a lot of people talk about time. And I know a lot of people time residents and fellows, whether they know it or not, time them doing parts of the case. I don't believe in judging folks by the time it takes you to do a particular step. Certainly, I don't want the ligament to take you an hour, okay? But what I judge you on, um, and what I judge myself on, frankly, are, are really two things. How do you handle the tissue? So what does your tissue handling look like? And how do you set yourself up with the proper exposure? So I think exposure and using the fourth arm on the robot, for example, in a lobectomy is the entire case. So when totally I watch agree. a resident or fellow, if I notice that they're forcing themselves to work in a tiny little hole or a tunnel with the lung on top of them and then I know that they're not quite ready to move to the next level and do the more advanced case. When I watch a resident or fellow who really opens up the field of dissection, and you know, let's say you're doing that left subcarinal node, and it's just wide open, and you can see everything, and they're not struggling with the lung flopping over on top of them, that's how I know. So it's about exposure. It's about tissue handling. And what I also want to see is, again, not so much that you're getting through the case quickly, but that you're making steady progress, that you're not finding yourself stuck in one point and just kind of going around in circles, that you know the next phase of the operation. Because for example, if I'm gonna start having you do something like a sleeve resection or a bronchoplasty, I need to know that you can handle that tissue. I need to know that you know how hard to pull and that your visual haptics have truly taken over for your tactile haptics. So, you know, that, that's, my, that's my concept. And I, I really don't tr time people as much as I look at exposure and tissue handling. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I focus a little more on time than I probably should just based on who my previous mentors were and their, their <laughs> emphasis on time. Um, I, may, I may know who you're talking right. about. Right, <laughs> but, but I agree. The, the whole thing, especially when you're training is safety. You know, it would be nice if, you know, the trainees can do the lobe, you know, skin to skin in under an hour and a half, like, like we do when we're, we're on our own. But that's not the important thing here. The important thing is for them to get it done safely with good oncologic results so that they could keep progressing along the learning curve. Absolutely. You've had your current senior fellow, Dr. Watkins, publish numerous case videos. And, and you mentioned this a little bit before with the game tape. 
How do you emphasize that to the trainees and really get them to buy into the fact that they should be looking at all of their, their videos and going back and seeing what they could do better um, for the next case? Yeah, so I hope I lead by example here, Brian, in, in that I do this myself. And I, I honestly think all of us should do this, not just fellows and residents, but I think attending surgeons should. And, and it's a time commitment. And some of us don't have enough resources to do that, but I think it's so important. I really look at it, and it might sound like a cliche, but I look at it like professional elite athletes. You know, elite athletes, they look at game tape. They watch how they perform. They have coaches. And, and we traditionally don't do enough of that in surgery, um, but with the benefit of uh, minimally invasive surgery, whether it be VATS or robotic, we can record those cases. And if you ever come to my operating room, what you'll see is on the circulator's computer in big block letters on yellow tape, like caution tape, essentially. <laughs> this is not an exaggeration. It says every thoracic case gets recorded. So everyone knows that every thoracic case gets recorded and we, we look through them. And I'll be honest, I don't obviously look at every single one of my cases, but I will go back and I'll look at any cases that we struggled with, any cases that I didn't like how the either the outcome was or, or took longer than expected. So I, I think, you know, it's a long-winded answer to say that I think it's incredibly important, Brian. And I think that the fellows um, see me do it and I think that they should do it. And, you know, it's a great way to try to increase your, in air quotes, case numbers, because mm -hmm. you can only do so much in two years, like you said, but you can watch a ton of surgery and you can watch how people are dissecting. And, and I promise you, if you watch it enough, then that will become part of your muscle memory as well. So it's, it's really important. Yeah, I think I'm going to steal that yellow caution tape idea from you, because I like <laughs> to record all my cases as well. And you know, every t now and again, we get we get a circulating nurse that's not from our team that doesn't realize it needs to be recorded. Um, one of the things I've actually started doing to try to emphasize the game tape to my my trainees is for this the fellow that's on service. Once every two weeks, I sit down with them and they bring a recorded robotic case that we've recently done, and we go through it together. We spend half an hour watching the game tape together, trying to see what could we do better for next time. What are some things that you know, we, we missed or could have been more efficient. And I think that's my way of trying to emphasize to them how important this is, showing them that it really, really helps. Um, so hopefully I, I think that's a great, I, I think that's a great idea. And I, I, you know, that's something I can take back to my team. You know, we can dedicate more time as a group as part of rounds or part of our conferences. But the other thing that we didn't talk about, Brian, is the fact that, um, you know, for the fellows and residents, this can translate actually into academic productivity. You know, you can actually publish, whether it be with CTSNet, which is a great resource, um, or even at our major national conferences. You know, um, we've had, as you know, uh, fellows and residents put videos and how I do it videos with the STS, with the AATS. And, you know, that, that you know, it's not a... Uh, it's not, it's not going to get you your next R01, uh, but it's, a, it's, 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 it's good, it's, it's good um, academic productivity. It goes on the CV, and, and frankly, I think it helps others, which, is the, which should be the goal, you know, to see what we're doing. So I think as the residents and fellows um, look at the tape that we do, look at the recorded um, videos, they say, hey, you know, Elliot, maybe this is something that we can submit please, let's put it together. Let's make a case uh, presentation video and, and submit it somewhere. 
Yeah, it, it's so true. And pretty much every job out there now wants a general thoracic surgeon with robotics experience. And as a graduating fellow, if you can not only you know, show your case log, but also say, look at all these presentations I've done of robotic techniques, that's me operating. It's, you know, the proof is in the pudding. It shows them that you really know what you're doing and that you've had experience with, with these complex cases. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's finish off with the additional opportunities that are out there. You know, as we talked about earlier, fellowships only two or three years, but there are opportunities for advanced training. The AATS uh, Foundation Robotics Fellowship, which just announced the acceptances for the next academic year. And I want to congratulate our fellow, Dr. Ryan Clark, as you know, being picked as one of those to attend. Um, great. Yeah, it's, it's an often sought after uh, training experience. So what's your experience been with that program? And then as a follow-up to that, how important do you think it is for someone to pursue a super fellowship in robotics after formal CT training? Yeah, so let's start with the uh, ATS Foundation Fellowship. You know, I, I haven't put a fellow through there um, yet, but all the feedback I've had uh, from folks who have been involved with that program ha has been universally positive. Um, I, I think that it is an awesome opportunity. Um, I, I frankly think that it is wonderful to see the support robotics is getting um, from the societies. Um, yes. and, and, and I actually also think it's wonderful to see the collaboration between the societies and the industry. Um, we could have a whole podcast on that, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but I think that there's real benefit um, to that productive relationship. And I think it's fantastic. And, and I would encourage anybody listening who's in a position to be involved, to, to get involved. Um, or for that matter, to do um, you know traveling fellowships or traveling um, uh, proctoring or case observations uh, with folks who you think um, might do things a little differently than you're used to, or if you don't have the resources at your institution uh, to get training in robotics, yes, travel there, which I, I think you know really. Um, dovetails into the second part of your question, which is, you know, what is the role of super fellowship? Well, I think it really depends on what your local resources are and your local and your experience at your own training program. And I think like many things, as time goes on, we're going to see that people coming out of just a standard general surgery residency and then standard CT uh, training are going to feel like they have excellent robotic skill set. It'll probably become a foundational skill set. Um, but right now, that's not universally the case. And I think the most important thing as a trainee, um, and again, everything we're saying today here, Brian, is also for attendings, I think, mm -hmm. um, especially Agreed. junior attendings, but is to be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself about how uh, your training in robotics has been. Are you proficient? Do you need more training? Do you need to become more proficient? And if the answer is yes, that there's no shame in that. It, it, it's go find the resources that you need. And if that's taking a super fellowship, um, then, then go that direction. I, I am more and more sensitive these days, Brian, to sort of the impact that that has on people in terms of their family uh, and, and financially, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, equity and people's opportunities to all uh, participate in these kind of fellowships um, and super fellowships. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of opportunities even outside of a formal year-long super fellowship where you can obtain training from experts in robotic surgery who would op openly welcome you into their program for 
you know, a certain period of time. Um, you know, I know, for example, we would be more than happy to have uh, visitors at our institution and show them how we do robotics. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I think that super fellowships are great for a specific subset of people that really need a full year of, you know, very in-depth experience to get up to speed. But if you've had, you know, some foundational training already, there are a lot of opportunities, whether it's just reaching out directly to somebody like yourself, or even going through intuitive intuitive is great programs for junior faculty to get you linked up with a proctor to have you come down to either Atlanta or Sunnyvale, get some extra training, you know, if you succeed, they succeed. So they really have have bought in quite a bit with junior faculty, making sure that our skill sets are, are, are up to speed. Um, but, but Brian, yeah, I think you also touched on a really important thing, and that's that, you know, for all those folks listening to this podcast, there are a lot of people uh, like yourself, uh, like myself, like a lot of our colleagues who, who would love to be resources for anybody, not just people in our own program, but anybody interested in, you know, robotics or minimally invasive thoracic surgery in general, and how do you make that transition from fellowship to being an attending um, and, you know, how do you learn as a junior attending to be a proficient robotic surgeon? So I think people should not be afraid to just pick up the phone or mm -hmm. just send an email, you know, send an email with, with you know, no, no prerequisite, no, no needing to shake hands at a meeting first. Just shoot an email to uh, Dr. Mitzman, shoot an email to me. Let's, uh, how, how can I get involved? And I guarantee you, you'll be, you'll get a, a very warm and welcoming response because we all want to sort of help out. Yep, we, we have a great community and everyone should take advantage of that. So Elliot, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You really are a leader in our field and the amount that you've accomplished in such a short time in your career is very impressive. You know, I'm sure we're going to have you on again for more podcasts and for more, uh, more panels on CTSnet. So keep your schedule open because we'll be calling. <laughs> More than happy to. And, and, and uh, thank you for those comments, although uh, I'm, I'm not sure I live up to all that. But uh, Brian, you've done a great job with this. And thanks for having me on. This is fantastic. Before we finish up, I want to point out an outstanding presentation at this year's AATS virtual conference. The initial results for JCOG 0802 were presented. And all I can say is that this could be practice changing for many. For those not familiar, JCOG 0802 is a randomized trial evaluating segmentectomy versus lobectomy for clinical stage 1A peripheral non-small cell lung cancer with a consolidation to tumor diameter ratio of greater than 0.5. Many of us are already performing complex segmentectomies for these patients due to the ease of doing so with the robot, but the data is limited and based on retrospective series and analysis of large data cohorts. In this group, there were 554 patients in the lobectomy group and 552 in the segmentectomy group. With a median follow-up of 7.3 years, the authors showed a superior overall survival in the segmentectomy group, 94.3% versus 91.1%. There was a higher local regional recurrence rate in the segments, but this did not correlate to decreased survival. I'm personally excited to see this manuscript and review the results in detail, and we'll certainly be discussing this on CTSnet in the future. Thank you for listening to this week's Beat. If you have an idea for a future episode or would like to get in touch, please visit us at ctsnet.org. I can personally be found on Twitter using the handle at Brian Mitzman. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star review so we can be more readily found. 
Keep an eye out for our Jans, Journal and News Scan, where we pick the highest impact latest stories for you. For myself, Brian Mitzman, and the rest of the CTSNet team, thank you for spending time with us and see you next time.